The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World, Episode 63, Ancient Indian Religion. conversation about ancient Indian religion is normally based on the religious scriptures called the Vedas. The Vedas are religious texts thought to have been composed by Aryan migrants who arrived in the subcontinent after the mysterious disappearance of the Indus Valley civilization during the second millennium BCE. The Vedas are the earliest known Sanskrit scriptures and the earliest texts that relate to the modern religion of Hinduism. There are four distinct Vedic scriptures, the Atavaveda, the Samaveda, the Yayurveda, and the oldest of the four, the Rigveda. Before we go any further, it is very important to mention that this is not the first time we have tackled organised religion as a subject in this podcast. In Volume 1, we looked at the human rituals of the Paleolithic during Episode 13. This was the origin of our story of the earliest known human religion. During Volume 2, we developed on our knowledge of human ritual and the creation of deities or godly individuals that were honoured in a world full of polytheistic attitudes, which means the recognition of multiple gods or heroes. We explored religious development in and out of the eastern Mediterranean, from the Greek-speaking lands to the north, to the Egyptian-speaking lands to the south. We also explored how the earliest ancient scriptures gave us clues about how Near East religious attitudes developed into the much more familiar biblical scriptures and messages. Out of all the podcast episodes that have been turned into YouTube videos, The video about the emergence of biblical scriptures and ideas has been watched more than any other and some of the feedback is not particularly positive. This is because some of those watching the video were looking to see if I would represent their religion in the way that they deemed to be correct. However, my presentation was a historian's unbiased view based on all the evidence to hand with no preconceptions. So it didn't tell the story of the Bible, as some maybe hoped. So let me take this opportunity to say that this podcast episode is not an episode about Hinduism for devout Hindus or Buddhism for devout Buddhists. This is a study of all of the historical evidence without bias and how these religious concepts developed in society. As ever you will make your own mind up about the chosen religions with all of my blessings. And that's my disclaimer out of the way. Firstly, let's identify the Hindu Trimurti. The first Hindu god of the Trimurti is Brahma, the god of creation. Traditionally, he created all life on earth. 
The second Hindu god of the Trimurti is Vishnu, the god of preservation. Traditionally, he controls and regulates the existence and flux of the universe. The third Hindu god of the Trimurti is Shiva, the god of destruction. Traditionally, he is going to destroy the universe before its recreation. However, this is also just one view of these three gods. One of many views that have come and gone over the course of modern history and with each god experiencing varying degrees of importance. Shiva So let's take a closer look at Shiva, the Hindu god of destruction. On the face of it, seemingly quite intimidating by being labelled as responsible for the destruction of the universe. But this is actually an inevitable action that Shiva will do in a considerate manner to guide the universe towards its rebirth. So Shiva's actions can be viewed as both bad and good. Some Hindus worship Shiva as the principal Hindu god, which differs from other Hindu observances. It is typical for all religions to have differing forms and doctrines though. The religious observance of Shiva as the principal deity of Hinduism is referred to as Shaivism. The history of Shiva is particularly fascinating though and can cause us to look at Indian religion differently. Most of the Indian religions are initially traced back to the Vedas, which as we mentioned at the start of the episode, are the oldest Sanskrit scriptures that discuss Hindu tradition and culture. The Sanskrit language is believed to have been brought to the Indian subcontinent via the Aryan migration, also known as the Indo-Iranian migration. This is because Sanskrit is an Indo-European language. We are also aware that there are two distinct branches of Indo-Iranians. The Iranians who would compose the Avestan scripts that relate to Zoroastrianism and the Indics who would compose the Vedic scripts that relate to Hinduism. Before the arrival of the Indic peoples, we are aware that the Indus Valley Civilization, also known as the Harappans, occupied this area. The Indus Valley Civilization seemed to disappear before the arrival of the Indic peoples. And so therefore we could assume that they had no awareness of the Sanskrit and Vedic ideas that would follow them. If we go back to Volume 2, we devoted an entire episode to the Indus Valley Civilization city of Mahenjadaro, which existed from around 2500 BCE to 1600 BCE. In that episode we described the discovery of an artefact called the Pashupati seal. The Pashupati seal depicts a figure that has too much in common with the artistic depictions of Shiva to be coincidental. There is a definite connection between the pre-Vedic Indus Valley Civilization character and the post-Vedic characterisation of the Hindu god Shiva. So the Vedas would have had an element of Indus Valley Civilization cultural aspect to it, suggesting that some Hindu traditions 
predate the arrival of Indo-Europeans. We also supported this suggestion by referring to the great baths that the Indus Valley Civilization constructed being the precursor to the ritual Hindu bathing in the Ganges River. Brahma When we look at world religions where we didn't have the kind of media that we do today, we can witness it altering and diversifying over time. This is why Ashoka the Great distributed inscriptions of edicts throughout the Mauryan Empire because he wanted to standardise religious observance throughout his empire. In a similar way to how Hammurabi distributed his standardised law code throughout the Babylonian Empire. Egyptian kings such as Ramses II would use iconography to provide a code of thought throughout his Egyptian kingdom. When we look at Brahma, the Hindu Trimurti god, he has become somewhat of a forgotten icon in modern Hinduism, at least compared to Vishnu and Shiva. So even fundamental aspects of religions will change over time and this will often be because the existence of an alternative perspective can cause chasms and schisms that can suit the ambitions of individuals and people who wish to change their own fortunes. Where both Vishnu and Shiva both spearheaded their own modern Hindu observances, Brahma does not. Brahma's importance as a Hindu deity has diminished over time. In some stories, Brahma's integrity as a personality has been ridiculed somewhat, whereas others just state that because he is the creator and he has done his creating, that now the important ones are Vishnu and Shiva who will protect the present and the future. We must be careful to note that Brahmanism is not to Brahma what Shaivism is to Shiva and indeed Vaishnavism is to Vishnu. Brahmanism is not the cult of Brahma. The easiest way to describe Brahmanism is the transition religion between the Vedic religion from the era of the Vedas and the modern religion of Hinduism. Brahmanism actually supported the structure of the caste system, which placed the Brahmin at the very top. We have spoken about this in recent episodes, but the Brahmin are the wise and academic priestly class of society placed at the very top of the caste system, even higher than the monarch himself. The four Varnas of the caste system, the Brahmin, the Kshatriyas, the Vaishyas and the Shudras are said to have been created from different parts of Brahma's body. Siddhartha Gautama The significance of Siddhartha Gautama is that he was a prince who became the Buddha and therefore the founder of Buddhism. However, Siddhartha Gautama was born into a royal family within the Indian subcontinent which predominantly observed Brahmanism. Siddhartha Gautama would ponder on the aspect of Vedic faiths that humans continually reincarnate until they have been enlightened. Siddhartha Gautama observed the suffering of humankind going on around him and looked 
for a way to make sense of it. He would take great amounts of religious advice and engage in meditation to discover the truth. He would turn his back on his affluent royal upbringing and although he opted against the suffering of total poverty, he would practice self-denial to an extent. There were already monks living in total self-denial in their quest for enlightenment and Siddhartha Gautama practiced such asceticism before concluding that this was not the answer. Siddhartha Gautama would teach a different way where his students were encouraged to live a life without desire in order to attain the enlightenment required to break the cycle of reincarnation. Later in his own life, Siddhartha Gautama would legendarily sit under the Bodhi tree and attain his own level of enlightenment and from then on he would be known as the Buddha. The Bodhi tree is a sacred fig tree located in the modern Indian state of Bihar and the site is now known as Bodhagaya. An iconic statue of the Buddha reaching almost 20 metres in height exists at this sacred Buddhist site now with many monasteries. The Buddha's teachings are represented by a wheel which can still be found at the centre of the Indian national flag to this day. So here we see the historical divergence of what we know today as Buddhism from what would become Hinduism. But we must be very careful when trying to categorically state any information relating to the ancient differences and aspects. Buddhists are often said to follow the shramanic traditions which include non-violence towards humans and animals and asceticism or a life of austerity in a quest to achieve moksha, which is the breaking of samsara, the process of being reborn after each of their deaths. However, we must be quick to state that Hindus also pursue moksha, even though they are Vedic and not shramanic. However, some commentators state that shramanic traditions predate the life of the Buddha and even find their roots in Vedic scripts. So the traditional lines between Hinduism and Buddhism are blurry, according to which commentators you choose to believe. Ashoka the Great Ashoka got an entire episode to himself back in episode 60 because he has become such an icon of the ancient Indian world and a major Buddhist icon in a country that generally tried to downplay Buddhism and Ashoka in favour of Hinduism to the point where he was just another name on a king list. When Ashoka's scriptures were deciphered during the 19th century, his identity and importance were brought back into historical significance. Ashoka the Great was a Mauryan emperor who turned his back on the otherwise normal warrior monarchy where imperial reach was extended by fighting and killing one's enemies. He would follow the shramanic path of non-violence set out by the Buddha and become the Buddha's biggest advocate. Ashoka would develop a temple site with a shrine at the site of the Buddha's Bodhi tree and use a cutting from the tree to plant a new tree to represent the Buddha's tree. Ashoka would build stupas around the Maurya Empire, which are burial monuments. The remains of the Buddha 
were distributed to the various stupors to give them significance and an important presence among the predominantly Brahmanic population. There is an irony to Ashoka's success in spreading the word of Buddhism which extended its influence to East and Southeast Asia. The opportunity for Buddhism to reach other areas of Asia was enhanced by the fact that Ashoka, Buddha's greatest advocate, violently conquered other lands, slaughtering the populations. Due to his successful terrorisation of other cultures, peaceful Buddhism was able to attain a wider reach when Ashoka distributed his remorseful edicts throughout his conquered empire. Ashoka's representation of the Buddha's teachings in terms of a moral code of conduct of self-improvement can be referred to as the Buddhist Dhamma, loosely developed from the Vedic tradition of Dharma, which also became a Hindu tradition. Pushamitra Now, in the previous episode, we introduced the story of the aftermath of the Maurya Empire, which gave way to the Shunga dynasty, who ruled from the heartlands of the Magadha kingdom, which contained the powerful city of Pataliputra, identified as close to the location of the modern city of Patna, which is about 60 miles north of the Mahabodhi temple, the location of the Bodhi tree that was enhanced during the reign of Ashoka the Great. As we previously mentioned, despite all of this positive promotion of Buddhism, it was still a minority religion of India. Brahmanism and Hinduism, if we dare to consider them to be synonymous during this period, was the most popular religion. When Pushamitra Shunga assassinated the last Maurya monarch and took control of the lands of the Magadha kingdom, it was clear that Pushamitra had no regard for Buddhist tradition. One of the indicators of Pushamitra's spiritual beliefs was his continuous acts of Ashvamedha, a traditional act of horse sacrifice that legitimises a monarch's right to rule and is traceable back to the early Vedic religion. This practice would not have been in any way compatible with Buddhist Dhamma. However, beyond this, Pushamitra is reported to have persecuted Buddhist monks in a show of religious intolerance, which wasn't necessarily common in Indian lands. He would even take an iconoclastic attitude to Buddhist temples and stupas by attempting to destroy a number of them during his reign. Pushamitra was the first monarch of the Shunga dynasty. Even though he was intolerant of Buddhism, this was not an aspect of the Shunga dynasty but something very personal to Pushamitra. Buddhism continued to flourish during the Shunga dynasty despite the fact that Brahmanism was clearly the more dominant and powerful movement. Buddhist Schisms After the lifetime of the Buddha, the purity of Buddhism was challenged at various points during its earliest centuries. Buddhism was not unlike Christianity in that it was a minority religion in its early years with a lot of missionary activity. There were Buddhist monks accepting financial gifts and there were reports of significant councils being called in order to try to standardise Buddhism, yet another thing that we saw in Christianity's early years within the Roman Empire. 
Emperor Ashoka the Great sponsored one of these Buddhist councils during his lifetime and it took place in Pataliputra. This is referred to historically as the Third Buddhist Council. We're not really sure whether this is considered to be a Buddhist council for all Buddhists or whether the fractures in Buddhism had already become too wide for any council to consider this to be repairable. The biggest schism of Buddhism is the schism between Theravada Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. Some state that Ashoka's third Buddhist council was set up to repair this emerging schism, but others say that the schism was already so wide that the third Buddhist council was specifically a Theravada Buddhist council and that Mahayana Buddhism was a disparate movement by this time. Theravada Buddhism would flourish in Sri Lanka thanks in part to the work of Ashoka's children who continued to promote Buddhism on their father's behalf. It was in Sri Lanka at the 4th Buddhist Council that the Pali Canon was recorded in writing in around the year 83 BCE. The Pali Canon, also called the Pali Tipitaka, was an oral tradition before this and can be traced back to the third council organised by Ashoka and then stretching back to the oral instruction of the Buddha himself. It is said that these oral traditions had to be written due to the fact that many of the Sri Lankan monks had been starving to death due to drought and there was a genuine fear of the oral traditions being lost. The Pali Canon to this day are a set of significant Buddhist scriptures named the Pali Canon due to it being recorded in the Pali language of the Indian subcontinent. Now, to those of you who have been listening to the podcast episodes chronologically, you may have noticed that this is not the first time that I have mentioned the Fourth Buddhist Council. During the episode about the Kushan Empire, which was episode 61, we mentioned that the Kushan Emperor Kanishka instigated the Fourth Buddhist Council in the lands of Kashmir, which doesn't connect to what we have said in this episode about the Fourth Buddhist Council taking place in Sri Lanka during the 1st century BCE. The reason for this difference is because Kanishka's council was a Sarvastivada Buddhist council, which is linked to the Mahayana Buddhist division, which does not recognise the Theravada Fourth Buddhist Council held in Sri Lanka, or the Pali Tipitaka. So Buddhism had clearly and distinctly diversified by this time, with Kanishka's Buddhists preferring to study the Mahayana Sutras. Hindu Scriptures Sutras is actually a very wide description of written religious advice that is used for all of the Vedic faiths of the Indian subcontinent. So there are Hindu sutras and Jainist sutras as well as Buddhist sutras. Many of the Buddhist sutras are recordings of the teachings of the Buddha himself. But the earliest Brahmanic or Hindu sutras find their place in the Vedas themselves. It may have been during the era of the Gupta Empire of the Indian subcontinent that it was decided that Hinduism needed an all-encompassing set of religious texts that would record all of their mythologies and traditions. And so, the Puranas were created. 
Despite the Gupta Empire generally having a reputation for religious tolerance, a motivation for the construction of the Puranas was to standardise Hinduism and bring discipline to its practices, which in turn would bring clarity to Hindu society and the caste system. The Ramayana was written by the poet Valmiki, and it is a poem about the incarnation of the Hindu god of the preservation of the current universe, Vishnu. The incarnation's name is Rama, but we're not completely sure when Valmiki lived and penned this poem. I've seen dates offered between the 7th century BCE and the 2nd century CE, so there is no firm consensus. The epic poem centres around Rama's attempts to rescue his wife who was kidnapped by the demon king, Ravana, and it is a mythological story with moral messages for the Hindu community. Another associated Hindu text is the Mahabharata, which we can attribute to the Gupta period. It is one of the most important religious texts in history. The text is written by Vyasa, a figure who is considered to be an immortal in Hindu tradition. The story within the text explores the relationship between the two branches of the royal Bharata dynasty and their war with each other. The most popular section being the discourse between Arjuna and his charioteer Krishna. Arjuna reaches the battlefield and has a crisis of conscience when he sees the war taking place between these royal blood relations. His charioteer Krishna is actually once again an incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu. The discourse provides much in the way of general moral guidance for the Hindu community as a whole, which is why the text is treasured. When talking of the Gupta dynasty, once again we are talking of a predominantly Hindu empire in Indian lands. If we look back to episode 62 on the Gupta empire though, then we can see reference to what we believe to be the originator of the dynasty, a king called Gupta building a Buddhist pilgrimage in Indian lands. So this suggests religious tolerance or indeed that Gupta himself was a practicing Buddhist. His grandson, Chandragupta I, married into the Lichavi kingdom. The Lichavi are portrayed as Buddhists, but there is no evidence of Chandragupta himself being a Buddhist. His son, Samudragupta, was evidently a Brahmanist or an observer of Hindu gods. However, he asked a Buddhist preach to teach his son and allowed the Sri Lankan king to build his own Buddhist monastery near Bodhagaya. So once again, a great demonstration of the existence of religious tolerance. In retrospect, the religious position of the Gupta Empire appears to be one of Hinduism with a leaning towards Vaishnavism, with an absence of encouraged persecution of the heterodox religions such as Buddhism and Jainism. Proliferation 
During this brief series of podcast episodes on ancient India, which is now drawing to a close, we have been somewhat negligent of the far south of the Indian subcontinent, which is the modern Indian state of Tamil Nadu. Tamil Nadu always stayed somewhat distinct from the great empires of the north, and it is one of those areas where Jainism flourished more so than in other areas of India. The Jainists, as far as world religion goes, are closely linked to the Buddhists in that both faiths suggest an ascetic existence being a correct way to respect life on earth, with non-violence, vegetarianism and avoidance of material attachment being seen as good things. Both do not recognise gods, but do believe in deification where an individual can be considered as divine. You can find Buddhist priests, but not so much in Jainism where a priestly class is not recognised in favour of humble monks and nuns instead. A contemporary of the Buddha called Mahavira is important to Jainists in that he was responsible for standardising Jainism and defining what it meant to be a Jainist for the comprehension of its followers. Jainists are looking for the route to moksha, which as we know is the enlightenment which allows us to escape our constant rebirth. The quest for moksha is something that links Jainism to Buddhism and Hinduism, and indeed the more modern religion of Sikhism. Jainism can be discovered in various areas of India and was comparatively successful in the western states of Rajasthan and Gujarat, as well as taking advantage of the cultural difference of Tamil Nadu, where Brahmanism was not so dominant in ancient times. Theravada Buddhism found its success spreading away from Hindu lands, such as in Sri Lanka where it was distinctly recognised as the Theravada branch in contrast to it spreading the opposite directions to the lands of the Kushans, where we can recognise it as the Mahayana branch. Mahayana Buddhism would travel eastwards along the Silk Roads where it would find popularity during the first millennium in the lands of China, Korea and Japan. The religious tolerance shown by the Hindu faith in Indian lands meant that those who felt an affiliation to some Buddhist traditions were able to integrate into Hindu culture without persecution, which actually meant that Buddhism was probably just naturally consumed into Indian religious practices rather than conquered or outlawed. The Theravada Buddhist practice would migrate from Sri Lanka across the Bay of Bengal where it would become an important part of the culture of Southeast Asia such as in Myanmar, Thailand, Laos and Cambodia. An area that we will concentrate some attention to during Volume 4. Some would argue that the presence of Shiva in Indus Valley Civilization artwork points towards Hinduism being the oldest attested modern religion in the world. But this is open for strong debate, especially by fundamentalists who would dismiss a mainstream overview based purely on archaeology and scientific dating. It is also open to criticism by those who interpret ancient scriptures as being relative to particular aspects of modern religions, such as the flood myths of ancient Mesopotamian texts being comparable to the flood myth in the Old Testament, for example. 
Hinduism also travelled to Southeast Asia, which is not often referenced due to the great presence of Buddhism and Islam there. Hinduism did successfully travel to Malaysia and Vietnam, which are the areas of Southeast Asia not as closely associated with Buddhism as the other areas already mentioned. In the modern world, around 80% of modern Indians in India identify as Hindus. Incredibly, less than 1% of modern Indians in India identify as Buddhists. Of the 20% of Indians who do not identify as Hindus, around three quarters of them identify as Muslim. Muslims are considered to be monotheistic and Abrahamic, which is in complete contrast to the Vedic faiths of India that dominate South and East Asia to this day. The Muslim religion of Islam spread to India from its roots in Arabia and the Near East, so it is geographically, culturally and characteristically more closely linked to Judaism and Christianity. So next week we will explore the ancient story of these three Abrahamic religions, which alongside Hinduism and Buddhism make up the five major religions of the modern world, in a bid to cover the topic of modern religion in the ancient world fully. There you go, hope you enjoyed that one. A bit of a insight into the emergence of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism in India predominantly. Um, and uh, hopefully a bit of an insight into how Buddhism isn't really present in India as as we might expect to see it. And um, apart from the traditional Buddhist monasteries really and a uh, very small population of, of Indian now Buddhist. Um, as we go forward through the volumes, we'll probably um, explore more about uh, Buddhism in other areas of the world. So um, so we'll be certainly coming back to that at some point. But um, I think these are fundamental subjects in, in order to explain fully the cultures of these countries, especially back um, then, back sort of a thousand to two thousand years ago. And... Um, those of you who've listened to this podcast and, um, you know, I'm all too aware um, that um, I will have a lack of direct feeling and expertise with uh, such subjects. Being, um, you know, I'm not a Hindu, I'm certainly not from India. And um, so there may be people listening to this podcast thinking, well, you know, that I'm not sure that Chris is com- completely capturing the feeling that I believe uh, someone should be if they're explaining a history of Hinduism, and so I apologise. And and look, if you if you uh, if you're interested in helping me to understand it better, please do write in. I'd love to hear from you, even if it's you know positive, negative. I'm I'm really just very very interested in hearing what you've thought of the work that that I've put into this uh, particular podcast episode. So. Uh, looking forward to hearing from you and and, uh, and getting your impression as to how you felt about the the podcast this week.
Now, if you're enjoying the podcast and you want to help to keep it going, then you can. You can support the podcast. You can uh, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. That always helps to expand the reach of the podcast. And then if you want to do a little bit more, you can actually make a financial contribution to the podcast. And with each financial contribution, I can dedicate more time and resources to the to the podcast itself, to the whole project itself. So um, always grateful for any uh, financial contributions. There are rewards that you can gain, uh, gifts and, and, uh, and privileges that can be gained uh, just go along to the Patreon website, which you can find through the History of the World Podcast.com website. Just click on the Patreon link and, and have a little click around, explore, and um, you know, if you want to sign up, by all means do so. When you sign up, if you've, if any of you have ever made a financial contribution of any sort to the podcast, whether it be one dollar or or two hundred dollars, um, you will become. Uh, recognised as a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And uh, this week we welcome in uh, Yakim Pence and Josh Woods, both now members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. We did get um, a suggestion from Lynn Dowling, who's already a member of the Illuminati. He's put, um, Chris, I'm already a patron, but also wanted to suggest a book. To, to a Mountain in Tibet by English travel writer Colin Thubron. He travels to the solitary peak of Kailash. To Buddhists and Hindus, it is the mystic heart of the world and an ancient site of pilgrimage. It has never been climbed. It is likely sacred because the area is the source of the Indus, Ganges, Brahmaputra and Sutlej rivers. Not necessarily a scholarly tone, but... Uh, but a great read and I learned a lot. If you can make the time, it sure fits with the current podcast subject matter. Cheers, Lynn from San Diego. Um, certainly, yes, um, I think that's one that's worth uh, sharing with everyone, Lynn. I think so. That I think that was definitely worth reading out to the entire community. Um, if you've enjoyed this week's subject matter, then maybe that is... Uh, a book for you to to consider. Uh, let's um, have a look at uh, some of the messages that have been sent in this week. Uh, let's see who's written in. We've got a message that's coming from Tom, Thomas Watson. And uh, I might need to just paraphrase a little bit of this, actually, because... Uh, it's rather long, so I might not be able to read the whole thing out. But it just says, uh, YouTube has suggested a couple of your podcasts to me over recent weeks, and I've enjoyed them, but I thought I'd add a thought after watching the Pictish History video. Uh, you expressed a view which is the popular and traditional one, that the Anglo-Saxon migration occurred after the end of the Roman period and that it effectively dislodged native Britons to what we now see as Celtic regions. Um, the and, and then he's suggesting that there is work to say that this, this is unlikely, this is actually an unlikely thing. Um, and um, it says that the works of Francis Pryor uh, state that the Anglo-Saxons were already in Britain before the Romans. And um, it says the detail in the Oppenheimer book uh, is excellent 
and uh, goes from the genetic to linguistic to the historic and makes a compelling case for a very different history of Britain. One tiny point he makes is to speak to the point well is regarding the Saxon shore forts, simply that their name would be the first time in history that a geographical feature, the Saxon shore, was named after the people attacking it rather than the people inhabiting it. Yeah, I've, I've often thought that myself, actually, if I'm honest. Like, it seems like a strange thing to, to put. And also, like the Franks were um, reported to be raiding the, the coasts of, of Britain in a similar period during that sort of... Uh, third century third and fourth century um it's an it's an interesting point of view i often think to myself uh, and um i think like oh I, I tend to always reply if, if anyone writes in i'll give you the the long-winded answer but like in short i always i, I don't always understand why there's opposition views um to be honest with you a lot of the time history um you know the Celtic relationship with uh, Europe and and etc etc is founded on evidence and evidence that's certainly from written history from the Romans' written history. Now it might not be exactly as um, mainstream history portrays it, but certainly there's going to be some veracity in it. Um, and I'm not saying that the the uh, the theory of uh, Germanic uh, speakers settling Britain before the uh, before the uh, exit of the Romans in 410. I'm not saying that's not possible. It certainly is possible, but I don't necessarily. I'm not in this school of thought of it of its one theory or the other. I can't see why it wouldn't be an amalgamation of the two theories. Why couldn't both of them be true or true to an extent? So, and I, and I think that about the Celtic uh, Atlantic seaboard theory as well. I think that you know, obviously, Latin is very, very uh, relevant in terms of its cultural um, aspects, in terms of that link. So that it has to have something to do with the story. So. Why wouldn't Latin have been influenced by Atlantic seaboard cultures of of Gaul? Uh, why why would that not be a possibility? Um, it's certainly not that far inland from the, from the west coast Latin. So uh, anyway, but I mean it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting to debate, and and none of us really know the the real answer. So, but I often think you know there can be uh, elements of two different theories or or even or even more and, and and I can't see why that's never the case it, for me it's rarely a case of one theory versus another uh 100% versus 100% but an interesting email tom and give me an opportunity to ramble on for a couple of minutes um and then uh, we got a message from Ian Stone who's put I have the impression of someone who does not know what they are doing is beyond human ability and so goes about it anyway. What are you going to do today? Continue creating my history of the world. That's nice, dear. Like a person who upon seeing bicyclists, is it is that a word, bicyclists? I'm calling cyclists, but uh, it surely is a word, bicyclists. It's just probably one that I don't use. Uh, uh, who upon seeing bicyclists fails to realise the need to pedal and so sits upright in the seat, motionless, in perfect balance. I have found your work. I can't even believe it is really there. I will listen to all of it. Thank you for this completely impossible feat of creation. Uh, that's for me and Stone. Well, that, that's very uh, humbling <laughs> indeed. 
to to read something like that. I mean, if you if you love something, you you're gonna do it, aren't you? And and I think to be honest with you, I've collected um, quite a lot of you know uh, literature over the years that and and. It really is just a case of respecting the literature that you've bought and, and as long as you've bought the right literature, you, you should be able to find enough material to make a comprehensive podcast. And um, Let's say, for example, um, I'll give you an example. We, we've been talking about the Celts. Um, if we if we look at I made an episode about the Celtic cultures. I can't remember the, which, um, which number it was numerically, but it was certainly like a couple of months ago now. Um, but if you listen to someone like um, Kevin Stroud of the History of English podcast, he does a podcast about Celtic cultures, and it, and it's totally different. Um, I, I love his style, and I love his presentation style, and I love the depth of his research, and 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 I'm almost envious of it. So if if someone thinks that my work is good, there's me thinking that someone else's work is better, and. Um, you know, they're equally. You know, there'll be someone who podcasts that looks at my work and probably thinks, well, "I wish my work was more like that." But to be honest, the, the uniqueness of the podcast—you don't want to hear podcasters telling the same story in the same style wherever you go. So, um, you know, it, my my podcast about the Celts. The point that I'm making is, is you know, my story is not the be all and end all. You know, you can listen to someone else's podcast. And you can gain more knowledge, you can gain more perspective because it's someone else's story. And that's all we're doing. We're telling our own story based on the interpretation of the information that we've discovered. So um, not not as impossible as maybe it might as it might seem. Right, always uh, one of my favourite times uh, of the week is when I get to read out the reviews. Um, certainly... Uh, most of them come from Apple Podcasts, so you're, you're all a bunch of nutters, and I love you a bit. So, but absolute bunch of lunatics. Um, let's read. Let's read them out. Let's see what we've got this week. We've got infamous IA from the United States of America's, but hands down best history podcast. I, I am not sure exactly what it is that makes this show so great. It may be the host's voice. Then it very well. Uh, maybe the information bestowed, but I hear you saying it's the script writing, uh, which none none of these are wrong, and when put together, the results are magical. Thank you for helping my work days not be intolerably boring. Keep up the good work. Well, I'm I'm glad that I'm managing to keep you entertained. Um, uh, Peony one 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 from the United States of America has put great, awesome, and that's it very brief and uh you know can't, can't argue with that at all thank you so much a nice five-star review that really really does help the podcast honestly if you if you if you just put a, a five-star uh, rating in it's it, i can't thank you enough it's it just really helps the project um blind hoops from great britain has but simply wonderful this is the book I've always wanted to find, but in podcast format. I've always found engaging with history a struggle, but this I'm hooked. Brilliantly researched, and Chris delivers it in a way that draws you in. So enjoyable. Can't re- recommend it enough. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Blind Hoops. And uh, Bassia Fabian 
has put best history podcast. She's from the United States of America. But I love this podcast so much. It's the only history podcast that's chronological and thorough. Chrissy's voice and tone is engaging, yet calming, and he knows his stuff. He makes everything so interesting, and it's authentic and genuine, not overly produced like other shows where some voice actor is just reading a script. And I love it at the end when he reads his fan mail, both good and bad. He's so sweet, I want to invite him for dinner. You haven't seen um, what my table manners are like, so just be careful what you wish for um, there. But look, a wonderful review, very kind and very sweet, and, um, you know, yourself, thank you very much. And uh, and thanks to everybody who's uh, written in and, and put a little note on uh, wherever you've done it. It's, it's wonderful. And uh, don't forget, you know, once the podcast ends, that's not the end of it. It's uh, You can go to the website, the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, and you can go to the interact section and get involved there. We've got the, the Facebook page. We've got the Facebook fan group. Don't forget that by Jenna Osborne. We get a bit off. We get a bit out of character. It's like the out of character um, board there. So we, you know, we can um, discuss anything really on the on the History of the World fan group. Um, so don't be sure to sign up for that on Facebook. Uh, if you want the details, let me know. If you if you're struggling to find it. You can follow me on Twitter, of course. You can um, you can also uh, come to the discussion forum. We can discuss things in depth there. So, like once the podcast ends, you know, there's you know a lot of people signed up to the podcast uh, to the discussion forum. So you can uh, you can venture into any topic you want, and uh, I'm sure you'll get a response from somebody. And and I always try to respond to to everybody myself anyway. So. Um, come along and if you've got questions it can be about anything it can be absolutely anything we don't even have to have covered it yet you know um, you can ask me you know how I go about picking what pair of socks to wear in the morning I don't think anything's uh, off limits really and um, you know just come and join in come and enjoy the fun and, and you know we're all stuck indoors at the moment I think most of us thanks to the the pandemic we're all sort of stuck at home so Let's you know. Let's find ways to keep ourselves entertained. Let's try and find a healthy way to to communicate and um, you know interact and, and let's do something um, together. You know, let's let's try and get through all this uh, together and and have a bit of fun along the way. Anyway, that's plenty from me. Next week, uh, we're still going to be uh, looking at the subject of religion. So we're just going to tie up those loose ends. So we've explored out of the five main religions of the world, the five. Uh, main religions that we recognise today. We've uh, explored the emergence of two of them. I want to explore the emergence of the other three, the three Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So we're going to do that next week. So we're going to hopefully have you know covered the whole topic of religion um, in, in a good and comprehensive fashion. Uh, in over the course of this week and next week so thank you so much for joining us this week and um, we'll do it all over again next week and uh, until next week obviously don't forget to be good come to the history of the world podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book 
and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.